0: LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and this is the show where we talk about how things in Montpelier shake out for the rest of us. I want to welcome this week to the show regular contributor Emily Kornheiser. Hello, Emily. Hi, Olga. And for those who don't know Emily, she is one of three representatives to the State House for the town of Brattleboro. And because we are talking housing and COVID and Protecting Vulnerable Vermonters. We have two folks here from Vermont Legal Aid who I'm so excited to meet. First is uh, Jessica Radboard. Welcome. Hello, Jessica.
1: Thank you, Olga. I'm glad to be here.
0: And the second person is Maraid C. O'Reilly, also from uh, Vermont Legal Aid. Thank you for being here today, Maraid.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So we are circling back to an issue that we have talked a lot about on this show, which is housing. But we're specifically focusing on what you will, people call it a lot of things. Sometimes you'll hear it called the GA Emergency Housing Program. Sometimes it's General Assistance Program. Sometimes it's called the Emergency Hotel Program. You'll hear it called a number of things, but it was essentially a program that Vermont launched during the pandemic, to make sure that vulnerable people who were either experiencing homeless or who became homeless during the pandemic had shelter and safe, healthy shelter. And during Can the I pandemic- Can I you already, Olga? I wouldn't dare stop you. Thank
3: you. So one of the things that's really interesting about this, which is sort of a layer about COVID that we've experienced so many other times, so we've talked about how the unemployment insurance system was- rejiggered in a fairly failing way in order to create a fake family medical leave program, right? That's sort of like one of the things we did during COVID. And so in a similar way, we had an existing emergency motel program called GA housing. And we've been using this for decades. It was originally created um, because someone died on a street, they froze to death. And Vermont said, that's actually unacceptable here. We don't wanna see that happen. And so created a program where folks can qualify for emergency housing in a motel for a variety of reasons and needs. And the um, rules have changed over the years. They're usually, historically folks had to apply at economic services offices to qualify. There was a rating system. If you'd experienced domestic violence, you got sort of more nights than if you were a single person and then The qualifications have gotten sort of stricter and stricter over the years. Um, And the only time that the emergency hasn't kicked in for a lot of people is if it was both very cold and there was a weather event. And so some folks knew, so folks would have motel housing for a night and then be back out on the street the next day because the weather was slightly improved. Um, For years, everyone's known that this doesn't really work very well. It's incredibly expensive, it's totally unstable. Differences in weather from like town to town can create huge um, unfairness in between, you know, Vermonters, what they're experiencing. And so all of our housing agencies for a while have been saying, "We, we think we could probably manage this better if you gave us enough money to actually create the housing. Um, and so there were a lot of conversations about how to shift that. And Josh Davis, who's just jumping into the zoom right now was part of those conversations. Um, our listeners might know Josh because he runs our local housing program. And um, so there was conversations pre COVID about how to shift this emergency motel program into something that might be more sustainable, more humane, more connected to services and into that sort of really, really wild melting pot of shifting eligibility came a pandemic
0: thank you one thing i'm going to that clarification and then do you want to correct me jessica
1: Yeah, so one thing I want to correct you on. Well, first, looking to the rules for the old program, they were really restrictive. And a lot of the times they were really irrational. So for instance, a family with a child that was age six or under would qualify for 28 days unless they had a catastrophic situation, in which case they might get 84 days. But if the child was seven, then they could get nothing unless they had a catastrophic situation. What the difference was between a child age six and why a child age eight or seven could be outside in a tent is sort of beyond me. Um, but then so far as the, the idea of shifting the responsibility for providing services to people experiencing homelessness, to providing shelter to people experiencing homelessness goes, there was a great divide, right? With most, this has been something that's, uh, you know, been discussed over the course of years and it's never made it through the legislature because every year service providers came out mostly some folks did like the idea but for the most part people were saying we can't do this this is way too much we can't we can't handle it right
0: So I'm just going to stop the conversation quickly. Sorry about that, Jessica. I just want for, especially for our radio listeners, uh, Josh Davis who is from Groundworks here in Brattleboro has just joined the uh, program. Uh, and he will be weighing in on this as well. Just say hi, Josh. So our radio listeners can.
4: Hi everybody. Hi, Olga. (laughs) Hi Emily. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Um, so Jessica, uh, I'm sorry, did I cut you off? Were there other, do we, with, with COVID having come onto the scene and this <laughs> hotel program opening up a bit, um, I mean, one thing that we wanted to kind of circle back to for this conversation is that this program opened a lot. I think uh, the folks who were managing it lowered a lot of barriers to the program. And now that um, COVID, quote unquote, has ended in some people's minds, um, the some of the state orders like the emergency order and such that opened these programs have also ended. Uh, And yet the need has not ended. So what are we looking at now um, that could happen to the program? I would love if we could give listeners that context.
1: Sure. At the beginning of the pandemic, I think the state did an amazing thing, which was to eliminate all the restrictive rules, to eliminate the durational time limits on the benefits and house everybody who needed housing. And that that prevented a huge crisis from happening, right? Mm-hmm. Um, then when it came to what are we going to do next uh, in the legislature, uh, it was a question of are we gonna keep this program going as is and what would that cost or are we going to narrow eligibility? And over uh, a number of meetings, uh, you know, some, some pretty significant battles, right? Uh, some rules were developed that limited eligibility for the program. I was part of that general assistance working group that was working on those rules, so was Josh. Yeah. Um, we were sort of given the directive of, you're not gonna get shelter for everybody for forever. The directive that our group was given was, you have much more limited money. We're not going to go back to the old general assistance program rules, which were so restrictive, figure out a way to protect the most vulnerable people with this limited amount of money with certain fundamental understandings, which were everybody sort of thought back then COVID was coming to an end that the FEMA money that had been paying for the program. So it didn't cause Vermont anything was going to be coming to an end. And we thought that, um, there had been a proposal to build six hundred permanently affordable housing units for people, specifically for people experiencing homelessness, so that there would actually be a place to exit to mm-hmm. okay. those assumptions, none of them actually played out, right? So and so uh,
3: let's let's talk about how those assumptions didn't play out and sort of what was planned to happen. So the assumptions that didn't play out is that we had a brief break in Covid, but yet we are now experiencing a significant resurgence. Um the housing units, it takes longer to build housing than some magical universe that we were all dreaming up six months ago, right because um, even if you're a you can't even just buy a motel that fast, even if anyone thought that was the right solution and um, right now I think that's the right solution um, and then, service providers sort of making those transitions also can't happen that fast. People's lives can't transition that fast. And the federal government has transitioned that fast, sort of, and the FEMA money is staying available. So Mm -hmm. all of the sort of assumptions that this wind down plan we're based in are not here anymore.
1: That is correct. And Josh, I think you can really speak to COVID is real still and what's happening at Groundwork. It's
4: very real. Uh, I spent most of my day supporting folks at our new facility on South Main because we had a a positive test there. That is a congregate shelter. Um, As you can imagine, it's, I won't go so far as to say it's a nightmare, but it's highly, highly not great for uh, (laughs) containing COVID. Uh, It's really challenging. And so we have a mixture of folks who are vaccinated, and we have a number of folks who are not. So we're really getting an accurate count on that and working with folks. And there's actually more people vaccinated than I initially thought. But what we're having to do is think about the logistics that go along with that, uh, people's safety that are being put at risk. This would not be an issue or not an issue to the degree if the motels were still open. Largely what we're seeing in the shelter today is because of the July 1 rules that went into effect. And that's why we had to push uh, push up the front opening of that new building, which usually we open our seasonal shelter in November, uh, but because we are seeing uh, such a need for housing in this community, we opened earlier. And so COVID is a- absolutely very real um, and around. And we're actually seeing you know, numbers, this surge that we talked about. You remember when we were talking about the surge at the beginning of COVID and it never really happened in, in Vermont. We're seeing that now. I'm hearing mm-hmm. that the hospital here in town is full and so it's very precarious of trying to get a hospital bed, and we're seeing uh, positive tests popping up left and right almost daily right now.
1: And I've got to say, for some of my folks who are still in the motel program who were looking at being exited on September 23rd, they've got COPD, uh, they're recovering from cancer, or they still have cancer. Uh, I had someone on a CPAP for, for breathing. Even if they're vaccinated, they're still really vulnerable to this Delta variant.
3: Mm-hmm. So that July 1st um, that was mentioned, um, I think it might be helpful for our listeners to understand that a little bit better. So the the stepped sort of the plan that was the working group came up with and that was put partly into legislation, um, and Jessica, I know you have a lot to say about that that we'll get to in a second. Um, said that on there's sort of a few different phases of people being, kicked out on the street. And one of the pieces of people being kicked out on the street is they're handed a pretty decent sum of money with the idea that they could then go find housing with that money. But there's no housing to find with that money. There was no housing to find with that money a year ago. We had people who spent more than a year on, with a voucher, able to pay for housing with nowhere to find housing. Mm-hmm. Um, and now it's even worse with the amount of sort of, you know. Everyone knows how terrible our rental market is right now, I think. We don't need to get into that for the 80th time on the show.
1: Um, Although I did get interesting data today. Okay. Do you want to share it? Sure. Um, So my dream is that someone does a study of what the heck is going on in the rental housing market, right? Because we have all these anecdotes of what's going on. So my anecdotes, right, my story is that what I'm seeing is... um, Seems like, again, just anecdote, what I'm hearing from former clients who rent single family homes is they're getting notices saying, you got to go, we're selling the property because the real estate market is so hot right now. Um, or places are getting converted into Airbnbs, short-term rentals. Um, and then also, again, just anecdotes, normally, uh, when we did our study, Eviction in Vermont A Closer Look, back in 2018, published in 2019, we found that 70% of evictions were based solely on non-payment of rent. So there was a lot of churn in the rental market because a lot of those folks behind on rent could just never get caught up because they were too low income to afford rents in Vermont, which are very high. Uh, and none of that's happening anymore. So in, in you know, my service area in Franklin County, now it's a third of the evictions are for non payment of rent. The landlords that I used to see over the years of doing these cases, they aren't filing. You know why? Because we've got the awesome Vermont Emergency Rental Assistance Program. And so there isn't that churn because and it is. Good policy, right, that we're preventing those non-payment evictions. It just means we're not seeing that churn in the rental market of people being able to move in. But what I recently got from the Vermont State Housing Authority is that they're seeing that 50% of the people with Section 8 vouchers, housing choice vouchers, which, you know, pay their rent. And this is a permanent program. It's not even time limited. Um, the number of people able to lease up is less than 50%. And that's, you know, they've got a permanent voucher that will help them pay their rent and they still can't find a place to live. Um, they're also seeing long owners who've been participating in that program for years and years, a really long time, just completely dropping out because they're selling their properties because they can make so much money doing that right now. Um, and also a lot of the landlords are just seeing this really hot rental market. And so increasing the rents because the market will bear it. But that means for a person with a voucher, they can't afford to, they can't afford to stay where they are. Um, so they're looking at sending a joint letter to HUD, uh, before September 30th, requesting a change in the amount that those vouchers can pay. And that will prompt a study to be done.
3: Wonderful. We also had a bill, um, seventy nine that was going to create a rental registry, including a short-term rental registry, which I was very excited about um, and received many, many emails from Vermonters and non-Vermonters about. And that um, was passed in both the House and the Senate would have been a great across the board look at the situation. And so we could watch it changing over time, but the governor vetoed that bill. And so mm-hmm. it is not law. And so we are not able to have that really across the board look. But what I was going to say is that we have all this money mm-hmm. that was, can be handed out to people on July 1st, but there's nowhere for them to live other than the motels. And so, Josh, what you were telling me is that people are couch surfing and sharing rooms in order to save money, which would be, you know, is more unstable emotionally, socially, but also is a pandemic nightmare.
4: It's a spreader. And so, yeah, we're definitely seeing that and people are staying there to save money or they're using some of that essential payment to pay for a couch or to pay for Mm -hmm. the ability to stay in somebody's room. Um, And so it's not necessarily that they're able to keep that money in their pocket while they're couch surfing. But what we've seen in some of our this recent round, which we're about three or four weeks into seeing uh, these positive COVID tests pop back up are in large part by folks that are moving between units. And so Mm they're actual spreaders of uh, the virus. And uh, again, a direct relation back to uh, the July 1 exit. Uh, I think that point just needs to be made over and over that yeah. we did this uh, public health, we made this public health decision, and it feels right here at the end is when we're seeing the spikes. And when it, it feels like it's the hardest, maybe we have, um, we've lost attention span for it. It doesn't feel as, as acute if the majority of folks in Vermont, 80% was the number, are vaccinated. So, hey, that's not a threat anymore. But it's really one of the more dangerous times of my experience in the last year and a half uh, since the virus came to Vermont.
1: I know Maraid's got a lot of clients who are actually intense. Can you speak to that a little, Maraid?
2: Sure. Um, I mean, in in terms of COVID rates
1: or? COVID and just hardships. And Just what happens hazards. on July
3: 1st, yeah. yeah, yeah. Or I what mean, happened that, to the people who knew they were going to get kicked out on July 1st and left early?
2: Yeah, I mean, those people um, have basically, um, most of my folks did a really, um, did the really tough work of attending to their health for the first time in a very long time during the pandemic. Um, and that means getting into recovery, stabilizing with you know, all of these wonderful primary care physicians who were still doing telehealth appointments all the time, um, getting signed up for MAT, um, and just really, yeah, paying attention to the ways in which their lives were and, and their bodies were sort of falling apart. Um, and what happened for many of them um is you know, all of their doctor's appointments and their, you know, um these relationships that they had developed with helping individuals were just, they just started to kind of fall away pretty immediately. Um, so, folks, a lot of my folks um, have really significant chronic health conditions. And, um, you know, it took a little while to figure out what was happening, but many of them had like plans to do bigger surgeries or, um, you know, plans to get, um, into treatment for things like cirrhosis or um, and just had to let that all drop. And that's really scary because they've already heard the prognosis of what happens when they don't get the treatment and they're all bought in and they're ready to get the treatment. And now they're living in a tent and they can't charge their cell phone. And, um, you know, just basic survival, everyday survival trumps the sort of longer term thinking of like, let me get back into a healthy, healthy place.
3: And I remember Sorry. a couple of years ago, um, Josh and I were, when we were talking about the GA transition and I remember, Josh, you saying that you were um, more comfortable with service providers sort of taking over the GA eligibility because you felt like you, your team would be able to really show up for that, okay. for exactly what you just described, Mairead, like for having someone who's in a stable sort of motel situation um, be connected to a service provider who's sort of aware of all that and that that relationship right there combined with stable housing is what would make it all key worth it for everyone
0: mm-hmm. so just for um those of us who are not as entrenched in in this issue as as other folks yes, thank you. did did that um what's that landscape look like now two-part question Did service providers get that kind of control that you were talking about? Josh, you're shaking your head. Okay.
4: Uh, I, I think COVID came in and it put that conversation on pause and really kind of the directive that we've gotten from the legislature, the GA working group that Jessica made reference to that she and I sit on part of the charge was to figure out the short-term plan to get people out of the the program because the eligibility rules had been dropped. And so what does that look like to bring the eligibility back in and to uh, bring down the numbers that are in the motel? That's the initial work, and that's where we saw the July 1 eligibility come back in, and we saw a number of people come out of the program. Also, part of that was if you had a, a disability that could be um, specified by a um, medical provider, you get an additional 84 days. And that 84 days uh, was going to expire, what, today? Yes. Sorry, somebody says, is a big day. It is big to day. Today. And so that's the big push. And we've been focused uh, on that group. I think initially that GA working group is going to hold once this first question of where we are in the motel now is resolved, which it is not resolved right now, then the next step is to talk about what's the long-term plan around what happens with that GA program? Is this going to stay as it is with the state and maybe start to tweak it there? Or is it going to move to a community provider model? Yeah,
2: and, are- do- and, and God bless you all for being able to have that conversation right now with COVID. Like I just feel like for most of us, the attention span is and kind of has to be like, week by week and month by month. So to, to try to envision a longer term anything right now seems like a Herculean
4: effort. Well, at I, best. I agree with you. I don't know if it can actually happen, especially if I you're know. a 30 day stay of this program. Yeah. How can we even plan for a year out, two years out? If we're, you know, I'm going to already start advocating, what are we, 27 days away. So we need to start yeah. advocating for the next 30 days and really getting us, are we going to release folks in October in Vermont? Yeah. And at this point, we, I think we need to buckle in for the winter. And if we could do that, maybe if we could agree that, okay, let's run this through the next six months, we could breathe as advocates yeah. on that end, and we could start to shift our attention to the long-term.
1: I agree. <laughs> and I, one, one thing to add on that, right? So um, one of the interesting things legislators did in Act 74, which was the big bill, which included, you know, how much money was being allocated for the general assistance emergency housing program and what the, you know, basically giving the flagging the proposal from the GA working group and saying, and Here's what, bill.
3: what Jessica means by the big bill for our listeners who don't live inside the legislature
1: is that's the budget. So in the budget bill, um, <laughs> there's language saying that GA working group came up with a proposal that outlined the eligibility rules, and those are going to stay in effect for the 2022 fiscal year. And i will read you the quote: "Unless there is a need to expand eligibility in response to a public health emergency or other emergency." And you know what? We got two emergencies right now: ongoing COVID public health emergency. And thank you very much for to FEMA for paying for the <laughs> paying for the program in full because of that. And number two, this. Crisis in the housing market like we've literally never seen before. Mm-hmm. So, to me, that means this is time for a change, right? We're, we're the emergency is here right now. So, let's make the change. And then, like Josh said, move on to thinking about what is this going to look like in the future? Because I do think everybody sort of agrees, right? The best thing is safe and affordable housing for everyone. But if you don't have yeah. that, we want to have safe shelter with dignity for everyone. Uh, and how that shelter gets provided, that safe and dignified shelter for everyone, you know, if it's from a community service provider, great, but I think we always need to have that state backstop because, yeah. Yeah. I don't know that community service provider, boy, it's hard to hire people in Vermont right now, but Josh can talk more about that, I'm
4: sure. About my regulations of that, I'd be happy to.
0: <laughs> I wanna pause for a moment. We've We've talked about a lot of regulations. We've talked about a lot of deadlines. We talked a little bit about um, some of Maraid's clients, but I would love it if we could... um, I feel so often when we talk about folks who are experiencing homelessness, it's an amorphous group out out in the ether somewhere. So I'm wondering, do we have... Can we... um, do we have some more information that you can share? Do we know like how many people are being impacted right now? How many families, how many children, any, anything that we can do to, to um, help people understand the situation?
1: Yeah. So I think there are 901 households in the program right now. Um, And last that I saw that, this is going to be a little off. It was 141 families. And family. one of the things that we negotiated for was that families with children wouldn't have a time limit, so they would be protected, right? Uh, and then my numbers are a little old. It had been 617 with disabilities, I think around 50 seniors, I think around 10 pregnant women, I think around 50 domestic, 51 domestic violence survivors. Speaking of the domestic violence survivors, I mean, I talked to someone who who literally thinks if she doesn't have a door to lock, she's gonna end up dead. I mean, the guy's been charged with a felony, right? But it's, I mean, it's real, like the danger here is real. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so we have that, we do have that data on who these folks are.
3: So the (laughs) numbers from the 16th, September 16th is Uh 904 rooms, 1,060 adults and 350 children. Yeah, okay. and that doesn't count the, how many people who, um, how many hundred people left on July 1st? A thousand?
4: No,
1: less. I think it was around,
4: yeah, hundred. it was less.
1: Okay. And then some came back in after our uh, well, I
4: was just gonna add, you know, Brattleboro is r- I think around one thirty that we have in the motels right now. We have 34 beds at our new facility on South Main Street and those are full. And then we also have our year round shelter that is basically full as well. We have, still have a little bit lower census uh, just for folks' safety there, um, but there's still 15, 20 people at that shelter.
0: Thank you. So if you think about
4: the shelters being a, a space for folks included in this conversation about motels uh, after July 1 and or people who are camping or staying in other places, sleeping in their car, other places that are not really fit for human habitation.
1: Right, if you sit down and talk to folks, as I know that three of us have have done extensively. I've also done
3: that extensively.
1: Yeah, it's it's just you all the blame goes away because when you hear someone's story, when you talk to that 19-year-old kid who grew up bouncing from one foster home to another, to another, wow, it's no surprise that now they have no place to stay at the age of 19 when they didn't or when you know, back in the day when there were time limits, even for families, I've had an 11 year old kid look me in the face and beg me, please find a place for my family to stay because they were out. They were out. How can we do that? And
3: so I would love to, if we, um, I don't know if you want to go to a break soon, Olga. I I
0: was going to, I want to hear your thought, but then yes. I um, I think
3: maybe after the break, it would be helpful to talk a little bit about the governor's arguments for why um, this should end now, because they don't make any sense from my perspective. And so I think it's helpful to unpack some of those Um, and then talk about what sort of has happened over the last week, what a pause means. And like Josh said, what we need to do to advocate, um, like everyone said, what we need to do to advocate for the next, 30 days? Are we going to do this in 30 day increments? No, that makes no sense because everyone will lose the energy to advocate. And I'm scared that's what the governor is counting on. So um, maybe after the break, we can sort of talk about what that landscape looks like.
0: Perfect. Perfect. So thank you, everyone uh, listening on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station, the Montpelier Happy Hour. will return in a moment. second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. You can also find us on iTunes as well as BCTV and other access stations around New England. If you're just joining us, I want to welcome to the show regular contributor Emily Kornheiser and uh, Jessica Radboard and Mairead C. O'Reilly from Vermont Legal Aid. Thank you for being here, as well as Josh Davis from Groundworks. Um, we are talking about housing and uh, some of the the crises that are happening in our um housing market and also particularly how it's impacting people who are experiencing homelessness. I have to say, I want to go to Josh quickly, but I have to say as someone who's not in housing and who sat back and watched um, the general assistance hotel program really take off during COVID, I have to admit there's a part of me that's looking at the challenges now and being like, we did it once people, why can't we just do it again? There's a little bit of frustration I have. Is just someone who's sitting on the sidelines. Just thought I would share that. Um, Josh, you were talking about a legislative process that you wanted to make sure our listeners understood
4: yeah and okay i think you make a great point you know i've been uh, doing this work for a while now and the, having the motels the eligibility drop for the the motel program is the first time in my tenure that we've really gotten a good look at the scope of the issue you know we use things like the point in time count to make our best guess about what uh the how large the issue is but because the state of experiencing homelessness is so transient and fluid it's really hard to wrap our arms around what the need is. And so I would say that, you know, we did it once, we did it in the motels. I don't know if that's the, the silver bullet that we're looking for, but the fact that we are able to have shelter for basically anybody who needed shelter in the state is profound and it's remarkable. And I think that, yes, we should be building on that. I think what we're talking about now is this uh, piece around this one program that plays a very vital role, but how do we transition from where it is as being a catch-all, for lack of a better term, to something that can help us transition into more appropriate housing or using scaling the emergency motel program uh, to a smaller size and having the housing in the community um, for folks who need it. And so in that uh, legislative session, there was a huge amount of money that was put toward housing in Vermont, which is really exciting. We've talked about the challenges of the time that it takes to bring housing from money and funding an idea to having a key for somebody and a lease and for them to be able to walk into a new home. That's a long process. Housing developers work in terms of months and years, not days and weeks. And so the the other pressure that we are feeling largely as a state was that the emergency motel program was uh, large, larger than it had ever been. And the legislature said, hey, we need a group of folks working with AHS department of children and families in particular to come up with a plan of how we are going to scale this program down, but then also the the long-term of the program, is that gonna sit with community providers or not as we talked about before? I think the reason that I wanted to bring that up is that um, if we take the last, what, two weeks as an example of some of the challenges of sitting at a table and trying to hash out uh, an issue like this, I think it's great in terms of intention of wanting to sit across the table from a state partner and having advocates right there at the table you're hearing in real time we're negotiating in real time in a lot of ways. But then in other ways, uh, you know, you sit across the table from somebody who is the ultimate decision maker has little accountability to the folks in the room besides what we say in the moment and they can say you know what. 84 days we're going to stick to that we hear what you're putting out on the table you know we understand what you're saying and those those could potentially be barriers but you know what we're not gonna we're not gonna change our mind on that 84 days Mm. and so i think i don't know if there is a a question or a point a pigeonhole for the legislature if we do a joint community state committee again that gives broader um power that spreads the power around, because ultimately, you know, DCF has the power of the person, it's their program, but it sets up this dynamic where they can just say, hey, we're not going to do this. And then we spend time as providers, as we're trying to put people into beds, into shelters, Mm -hmm. do COVID tests, we are running programs where we are at about 20 to 25% capacity. We also need to you know, late night send emails to our legislators, put out the call to our community. We're very reactive in the time and energy that it takes that our, the way that our kind of negotiating system works now is it's, it's confrontational. And I admire the hell out of Jessica and, you know, she's able to sue and bring that into the room. And that's one of the things that we have as advocates to really push on the state to, to have them listen to us. But, you know, just thinking about the intention of that smaller group and wrestling with some of these larger questions where we're ultimately going to disagree on what the policy policy solution should be.
0: And I just want to clarify, that's the working group that we mentioned at the in the yeah, first half yeah. of the show. Okay. And so
3: as we came up over this last week, we were coming up and up and up on the deadline um, to send a new large group of people out onto the street. Mm-hmm. And every member of the working group, um, Vermont Legal Aid, super loud and proud fighting this. Um, But it really took a tremendous lift from a lot of legislators who actually have no real power when we're out of session, it's just sort of positional persuasive power. Basically every advocate, every housing organization, all sort of jumping into this and saying no, but what we wound up with is what was phrased a pause. Um, And so we're left having to figure out what's gonna happen the next 30 days. And then is there gonna be another pause another 30 days after that? And Mairead said so very clearly, like what the benefit is of someone knowing they're going to stay somewhere. And Mm -hmm. so in the 30 day increments, it's better than nothing. For sure. But we really lose like a huge number of the Benefits to both the public and the healthcare system and yeah. the individual yeah. when yeah. we don't have that stability, like that housing first stability that we've all been talking about, you know, who work in housing.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm gonna push back a bit on what Josh said, right? So yeah. in in the working group, we came up with a proposal. There were some places where different agencies. Yeah, yeah, would say we disagree with this profoundly. And I was still trying to bark up my, you know, legislative trees talking about that. I testified on May 6th and pointed out some of the areas where Vermont legally vehemently disagreed and my ongoing concern, concern that we we're going to have a massive disaster unless we had the affordable housing built and ready to move into. Um, but legislators can say, with whatever proposal comes out, we're not going to approve this, right? And even at this point, You know, like I said, in Act 74, in the budget bill, there was cooked in this unless language, right? So to me now, the rule and the Administrative Procedure Act protects us against rules like this. The rule has become arbitrary and irrational because of those changing conditions. Because of that, unless in the legislative language, I think we also have, this wasn't the legislator's intent, right? I think your intent, Mm -hmm. and Emily, you know, I, I saw what you said in the Joint Fiscal Committee hearing that was last Friday, I heard all the legislators there saying, "Our intent is that you're going to change this now. There is an emergency, so th- th- there is power outside of just our, our little working group." With the- I,
2: I just need to pause and say, right now, you are proving Josh's point because you, as a lawyer, can understand. You know, you're sort of reading the language very, very, very closely, and you're understanding what you know what a legal hook is and when you can actually you know, hold, hold folks' feet to the fire in a different kind of way, whereas, you know, community providers are sort of sitting around the table and, like, you know, because right now, once again, right, it's, like, after the negotiating session when everyone just sort of had to, like, agree more or less that this proposal was going to go forward, you know, we can still come in and say, okay, reading the fine print, this is our assessment, and actually, like, here's how we're going to hold you more accountable but anyway
3: and hold you the administration accountable and i think what's interesting here is the administration can choose to not bring the proposal of the working group to the legislature or not implement it the legislature can choose not to implement whatever's proposed in both cases service providers are super captive to both powers Mm. and (laughs) so the level to which someone like josh um can take the, what is the appropriate level of risk he takes disagreeing? All of his organization's funding comes from the power of these two bodies. And so that's a really, really tough spot to be on. And I just wanna sort of commend you for how carefully you've walked that line and how courageously you've walked that line. But it's a really hard line to walk.
4: And you. um, Our our funding has been slashed. And so please send donations to (laughs) groundworksbc.org.
3: I think people can donate to Vermont Legal Aid too. Yes.
4: Um, No, I'm sorry. I I have to cut off. This is a fascinating conversation. I love this conversation. I hope that it's able to happen again. I would love to speak with you all more about it. So thank you so much for having me.
0: Nice to meet you, Josh. It's very nice to meet you. Thanks for joining the show today, Josh. See you soon.
4: I hope so. Bye, Olga.
0: So, Emily. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Jessica. And one thing, too,
1: I think you know, when I recently was in downtown Burlington, I live in, I live in Colchester. I was, I mean, I know, like I was just shocked and so saddened seeing how many people were sleeping out. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I, these are our neighbors, right. And people have power. <laughs> and so for everybody who's listening, right. If you think people having safe and affordable housing and in the alternative safe shelter with dignity is an important thing right these are our neighbors these are our communities that we're walking around in then tell your legislator tell the governor
0: yeah call the governor yeah (laughs) well speaking uh, of the governor Emily you mentioned um before the break there were some arguments the governor's making that you're not sure hold water for you well
3: it's not you know I haven't Actually, I think the governor did say this in this press conference, but previous to that, the um, commissioner of the Department of Children and Family said it to Joint okay. Fiscal Committee, and so that was a more direct experience I had of this argument from the administration. I was not paying full attention to the press conference, to be perfectly honest. So I will. Um, what. Has been said thus far about why we need to close down this program, given that it is fully funded by the feds, and so it's no financial risk to Vermonters. Um, given that we know that it's working, you know, in Brattleboro, for instance, our overdose death rate actually went down while people were housed in the motels, which changes wow. the long standing curve. Wow.
2: Um, we thank you not, for tracking that, too.
3: Yeah, and we haven't talked about that quite enough. Um, There's still time and space to talk about that in some other setting. Um, But given those things, the only sort of reason that was given to end this at this point is that the motels don't want folks in them anymore. Mm -hmm. And that's just not true. There are a few areas of the state where dynamics got really difficult And where motel owners wanted to exit but for the majority of the motel programs around the state the service providers and the agency of human services and the motel managed to create a fairly solid relationship that they continue to navigate and people are welcome to stay in those motels Mm -hmm. and so this other argument that's then layered on top of if we can't do it everywhere we shouldn't do it anywhere doesn't make any sense given that we don't do anything everywhere in this state. All of our solutions are local solutions. We have totally inconsistent justice throughout the state. So pulling that out in this one particular spot is just a Trojan horse or something, or Mm -hmm. red herring, or I don't Mm -hmm. know, I'm so bad at those idioms. But, um, and so there's that piece. And then there's the second piece that soon the tourists are coming and they won't have anywhere to stay which has two really challenging challenge that like make me want to scream about them.
2: Mm -hmm. One of
3: them is that like, we would prioritize the needs of tourists over the needs of like people sleeping on the street. Um, But second, tourists don't actually stay at those motels. No. Tourists stay in totally different places. (laughs) Tourists stay at Airbnbs so that the rental market gets decimated, Mm -hmm. tourists stay at, (laughs) bed and breakfast, tourists stay at hotels and motels. But the motels that folks are living in right now were motels that were mostly vacant, have historically been mostly rented by the state um, for GA housing, historically are rented week by week by folks who can't afford first and last. Mm -hmm. These are not motels that tourists are staying at for the most part.
1: Mm -hmm.
3: And so like, it's just, it's all just crazy making.
1: And there was a, a high schooler who's amazing, um, Addie Lensner, who contacted a number of motels that have been participating in the General Assistance Emergency Housing Program. And she had, I think, 46 mm-hmm. sign off on a letter saying, we're happy to keep people in this program. We don't know what the issue is. Um, I heard an interview of the owners of the, I think it was the Bradford Inn on mm-hmm. the conversation. It was just so moving, right? You know, they were talking about how they know these people these are their family i've talked to a motel owner who said that not the owner sorry manager uh he said the same thing that they see these folks as their family now you know sometimes they they've known these people long before they ever even became homeless know what happened in their life that led to them becoming homeless and know that this is someone who matters Yeah. and how can we put them out and they're ready to keep them
2: yeah the other thing that i wanted to flag that just always comes up for me um, when listening to the argument that, you know, motels just want to pull out of these contracts is as the state with all of this FEMA funding, is there a way to make those contracts, you know, more attractive to the motels? Are we paying rates that are commensurate to the rates that tourists are paying? Yes or no. And if the answer is no, then let's do it. Why can't we do that? Like not just a
1: rate, the terms too, Exactly. I, I think it's my understanding. And I don't know this for sure yet, um, that the state won't cover the cost of damages. Right? So of course some motels a the tourist, they give you your credit card. If you cause damage, you get tri- so I can understand why some motels might hesitate.
2: Yeah. Thing. But, but can the state renegotiate the terms of those contracts? If, you know, as their constituents are saying, making sure that our most vulnerable are sheltered is the priority. Um, mm-hmm. I think the answer is yes.
0: Thank you, Maureen. So um, Jessica, you know, having worked on this uh, working group and um, also with your role at Legal Aid, what are you feeling are, is the way forward? Like what are some concrete steps you would like to see happen that you feel could help uh, the situation?
1: Right now, we have, like I said, two emergencies going on, COVID-19. Um, I want to think positive thoughts that it's going to, we do not have control over this virus, right? So I'm not banking on it ending. Uh, we also have the crisis in the rental housing market that, again, we are doing massive historic investment in a permanent affordable housing development, but it takes time to develop it, right? Um and so, keeping people in the program until we get through through to that just seems like the only thing that makes sense. These are these are yeah. these are fellow Vermonters.
2: Right? Yeah, the only thing that makes public health sense and moral sense and you know any kind of sense.
1: <laughs> yeah, and then once we make that decision of you know after the pause. it's it's just we're just going to keep into the in the pause Um, we can move on and look at the bigger picture for the year to come
4: Mm -hmm.
0: well because it does feel a little bit and I I don't remember which one of you touched on this but this sense that we did so much hard work to keep our COVID numbers down statewide across all households. And it does feel a little bit that we are going backwards with the Delta variant um, and this kind of surge, the surge that's happening now. And it, it does feel to me again, someone who's sitting on the sidelines that we did all this hard work to keep people safe and Mm -hmm. healthy and we're kind of blowing it.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I think we're seeing it in, all arenas, right? We're seeing it in like mask mandates, just out, you know, in the public or in in businesses. I, I think we're seeing it everywhere. Um, that in all of these, you know, all of our institutions were doing exceptionally well, um, and now it's like COVID regulations were somehow like allergic to them, and COVID protections mm-hmm. were, you know, mm-hmm. we're remembering that like we think people should have choices just now.
1: <laughs> yeah. One thing I do want to flag to you, right? Boy, we're, we're in a difficult situation. Mm. So, um, you know, I, I, I found this old fair hearing case. It was for a general assistance emergency housing case. I think it was from 1988. Uh, and it was a family of kids and the hearing officer said, yeah, maybe the parents screwed something up, but kids should have our right? To have shelter, they shouldn't be out because the parents made a stupid choice, right? And that hearing decision referenced a report from, I think, 1986 on uh, homelessness in Vermont. And what did the report say that I dug out from archives? It said, wow, we really need to invest a lot of money in developing permanent affordable housing and providing services that meet people's needs, right? And then, you know, uh, many reports have come out over the... In 2016, uh, there was the roadmap to end homelessness. And we, you know, put all this work into figuring out how many affordable housing units need to be developed. And yes, we do put money into that, but we've underinvested over all the years. How do you dig out in a year? Yeah, we are in a crisis, like, but it's been building for years and years and years. You know, it's similar to so many problems we see in our society, like with the climate crisis. Yes, we started recycling, right? But we needed to do big things, and now California and various other states are on fire, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, we've got into this crisis, you could see it coming for a really long time. It's hard to dig out in a year. So, what do you do? You, you, I mean, I think it's time for some drastic action.
3: I think it's time for drastic action, and I think it's time for drastic action every single phase.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, So, Mm -hmm.
3: you know, similar to the climate crisis, like we need to think about mitigation and remediation and Mm -hmm. prevention, right? Mm -hmm. And so the motels, and it's not gonna be just a short-term solution, it's really gonna be a medium-term solution because we are using money to sort of fund faster housing projects that were already in the pipeline, but those were developed six years ago. Those units that are coming online right now, like development happens, started happening for them six years ago. And we're putting new projects into the pipeline for development. And we're changing some regulations, but it's gonna take a really long time. And every time we find someone permanent affordable housing, someone else becomes without housing in our community and needs somewhere to stay tomorrow. I mean, because we still have the sky high rents and it doesn't like I don't see you know rent control happening anytime soon in Vermont. And we still have wages that are way too low for people to pay their bills. And you know we still have no you know at will employment. So people can lose their jobs at any time and not mm-hmm. get severance. And so we have all of these huge economic injustices, right? That contribute to what we're going to have as a constant churn of homelessness unless we solve all those upstream challenges. And so if we're going to have that constant churn of homelessness, we need immediate solutions that are larger than just the overflow shelters around Mm -hmm. our communities. They need to be dignified.
1: Yeah. But some of the churn we don't need to have, right? So one of the really cool things that Vermont did um, this last legislative session is there, so, In the emergency rental or in the general assistance emergency housing program, I don't have current data, right? But it had been the case that 80% of the families in the program, families with kids were on the reach up program. Those are, you know, welfare benefits, right? Why? Because a family of two got $625 a month. Good luck finding a place to rent for $625 a month. Even if you do, you're getting evicted for non payment. And even I can't save you, or can't save you. It's like there's nothing, they just didn't have enough money to pay. So, one of the awesome things that we did this last session was there's this emergency rental assistance program, but there's a specific set aside for reach up families. They're all getting all their rent paid. They're not getting evicted, right? This is something that Hmm. used to be that you'd get one of those cases and you'd be like, there's nothing I can do for you. You can't afford to live anywhere, right? Whereas now that's just not happening.
3: No, and I remember when I was a reach up case manager and I would be working with folks and they would be without housing and there was absolute, like they didn't even have enough income to qualify for affordable housing. (laughs) And so it was just like the entire situation was just one pile of financial hopelessness, even though hypothetically the program is there to create some stability.
1: And like I was saying before, we aren't seeing that many non, or at least, you know, I've looked at the data in, in my county that I work in, um, and we're just not seeing all the non-payments that we used to. So there are certain solutions. Right now, they're just temporary solutions, and they do actually work, that we don't have to see this constant churn. So like, let's dig in. We know what works. Let's mm-hmm. just do it. And when, you know, people will say, oh, but that's going to cost some money, right? I think boy, you pay the price downstream if you don't do
0: it. Yes.
3: And the health problems that Mairead mentioned are incredibly costly to the health system as well as like painful and
0: terrible.
2: Yeah. And, and I think that's been documented in many places. It's a couple of even Vermont housing studies have, have used it. I think Advocates just need to pull that out and like carry that around with them everywhere, like so it's not just a you know what I think, I think it's a good investment, like no, we know that it's a good investment, we know that we're going to be paying for it dearly and you know exorbitantly if we don't so
0: thank you so I' I am sorry, Emily, we're out of time no. do you have a quick question no, no, no. or okay, obviously, we have to come back and have this conversation again because. <laughs> This time just went way too fast, and what I've been thinking about is I've been doing some economic reporting for the Vermont Business Magazine, and I'm hearing from employers about how they can't find workers. Yes, and they can't find workers because the workers can't find housing. Yes. and this this is you know this isn't even talking about folks on the lower end of the spectrum. This is Mm-mm. folks across all income spectrums, and so it's really hitting us this housing crisis socially economically, um, health wise, it's like impacting Mm -hmm. all sorts of areas of our lives. Um, So Jessica and Mairead, I hope you can come back to the show in the future. Um, In the meantime, if folks need your help, if they have questions, if they want more information, where can they find that information?
2: Um, The best place to find information, um, I think to start would be vtlawhelp.org. Um, and folks can do an online intake there, um, if they need our assistance. Also, if they just like tweet at me, I'll respond.
1: Or they can call our intake line. The intake line is yeah.
0: 800-889-2047. Thank you. And if it's, I did if not it's specific
1: online. to general assistance, especially someone getting yeah. terminated or denied, we yeah, prioritize yeah. those cases. So 800-889-2047. But for everybody listening, I can't tell you strongly if you, ha- if you think we should be taking care of our neighbors, especially in this time of crisis, you're experiencing homelessness, right? And it's always, it's just luck, right? That it's not there you know. or me. So let your elected officials know.
3: <laughs> especially the governor. because
2: yeah, especially weird. the governor. <laughs> the legislators seem to have gotten that. <laughs>
0: yes <laughs> Emily I people- think that is think is 828-3333 that sounds pretty familiar <laughs> hey Emily if people want to find more information about you or if they have questions for you how do they do that
3: folks can go to emilykornheiser.org and you'll find links to my email addresses my phone number my all my Instagram Twitter Facebook links as well as um updates on when you can find me out in the world.
0: Wonderful. And as always, you can find the Montpelier Happy Hour on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community station. You can also find us on Brattleboro Community Television, iTunes, and at local access station near you.